So we're doing this year-long exploration of this list of threes. So if you look at the, the bulletin board behind me, um, Twery Salah created that. And it just goes through the different you know, groups of threes that we are going to explore in three-month sequ- um, sequences. So this month we're exploring, this, this first quarter we're exploring what's called the three gems or the, their three refuges. So the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So I want to focus in on the middle one, the Dharma, to see how we can kind of get some, some experience around that. So I'm just coming off a month-long retreat at, at Spirit Rock, and I just want to thank all those who um, contributed to that meal, Donna, Twery. I saw her, and she, she told me about that. So thank you so much for, for thanking me and supporting me on that, that retreat. So as we explore the Dharma as a whole, I think it's important to see how can we find our way into that? How can we find our, our purchase place on that? The homework actually, as I, as, as I was writing that, I usually write that last after, after I complete a talk. I realized that was actually a good place to start. Because often we, we have this relationship between Dharma study and also our practice, our meditation practice. And sometimes one leads, sometimes another one leads. Sometimes we come in different ways into, into the Dharma. Sometimes we start by reading a lot. Sometimes we start by practicing. So the homework is, in your own experience, what has been the role of meditation practice compared to study of the many lists of Buddhism? And what's the relationship between these practice and study, which they each have their strength, each have their, their limitation, and they each have their way they cultivate things in our, in our lives, in our practice. And each of them inform each other. Practice informs our study, and study informs our practice. So I want to share kind of the way I came into the practice this tonight as a, not as the way to do it, but just as one model that we can, we can consider. And it's important for each person to find their own way, however that might look. When you look at all of the, the different individuals here online and also in person, each one of you has a unique set of characteristics. You have your unique history, your upbringing, your conditioning, all these things lead you to how do you experience the world, how you experience your internal life. And the Dharma has such a breadth, you can find what really fits you, what allows you to come, your heart to come forth in that. Now, looking at just a partial list of of the lists, I want to just name those for a moment. So we got the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, Eightfold Noble Path, the Three Characteristics of Existence, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the five aggregates, five precepts, four Brahma Viharas, five hindrances, seven factors of awakening, 12 links of dependent origination, 10 perfections, and 10 fetters of existence. So instead of trying to cram that all into a 40-minute talk, <laughs> I want to kind of talk more about how can we practice in a way that allows us to engage with whichever list we might be exploring, whichever list might come to the forefront of our, our interest or curiosity. Because there's so many lists, you know, how do we study that? How do we find our entry point into, into the Dharma? So you can, we can spend our time really studying all these lists, but here's a, a poem that kind of is contrary to that, searching for the Dharma. 
You've traveled up 10,000 steps in search of the Dharma. So many long days in the archives, copying, copying. The gravity of the tang and the profundity of the sung make heavy, heavy baggage. Here, I've picked you a bunch of wildflowers. Their meaning is the same, but they're much easier to carry. Suyun. Because sometimes we can, the practice, our study of the practice can get in the way of actually opening to the practice. Because each of these lists I just mentioned, and there's many other ones, are really ways that the Buddha figured out for us to understand our own minds and hearts, to understand how we create suffering in our lives, which is unnecessary. How do we add that quality of contraction of heart, contraction of mind? And also contrary, how do we release that? How do we open our hearts? How do we experience liberation, awakening? The Buddha said that, you know, I teach one thing and one thing only. That's suffering or dukkha and the end of dukkha. And that's an important way to just hold as we practice. What is this leading toward dukkha? Or is it leading toward the release of that dukkha? Dukkha is this poly word for suffering. But it has many more nuances from this kind of insufficientness of this moment, this quality of, of things being unsubstantial and permanent. Now, you look at all these lists, I think another important guiding principle is from this other sutta. This little line that just as the great ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, so this dharma and discipline has one taste the taste of freedom, the taste of freedom, the taste of awakening, the taste of liberation. So Sims is a Dharma organization. We teach, teach what the Buddha taught, you know, as opposed to some of the secular mindfulness, which is a really helpful way to learn how to bring mindfulness into your daily life and how to navigate all those things. So the Dharma certainly has that capacity of how do we navigate the world but it's also about how to liberate our hearts and minds. That's that one taste that the sutta is pointing to, the taste of awakening, the taste of enlightenment or liberation. You can think of that simply as how do you find peace? How do you find happiness that's outside of the conditions of your life? Usually our happiness and our peace is really dependent upon the people are around, the circumstances, you know, what possessions we have or don't have. And as we know, if you look at all closely, everything that we hold on to is eventually going to be taken away from us. It's going to break down. It's going to degrade. It's going to fall apart. We're going to lose it. Or we're going to be lost ourselves. This law of impermanence. So the Buddha really sought to find what is, where is peace outside of that law of change, that law of of impermanence? So we start to learn what that looks like, what that is in our own experience, in our own hearts and minds. And what works for one person may not work for another person. We have to find our own gateway into it, really what brings our hearts alive. When we look at this, this, this list, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of information in that little list of lists I gave you. 
But the good news is all we have to understand is our own mind and our own heart. So it's very doable because we live with our own mind and heart. We always have it available if we can just learn to meet it, to work with it, to open to it, to understand it. And these teachings are simply a gateway or a guidepost of how to do that very thing. Now, my own path as a practitioner, I've been practicing in this way for about 26 years or so. And my original teacher, Rodney Smith, he wasn't big on the classical this. He was much more about how do you work with consciousness? How do you work with awareness? How do you bring that in in a very alive way? And so, at least the way I interpreted his teaching, that's just my interpretation, is that that wasn't to the forefront. You focus much more on how do you actually see? How do you meet the moment? So for the first 12 years of my practice, I really didn't have much relationship to all these lists. And yet I practiced very deeply. You know, I practiced on retreats. I practiced in daily life. And then about 13 or 12 years ago, I went to the, it's called the Dedicated Practitioner Program at Spirit Rock, which is a two and a half year program that teaches really the list, goes into the Dharma in a, in a, you know, in a very comprehensive way. As I started doing that, it's very interesting that these lists, which I hadn't studied before, I could see how they showed my own experience, how they helped me inform and understand what I've been looking at through my meditation practice for those 12 years. They made them much more alive, much more engaging. They helped me understand more deeply what I've been observing. So they put them in context. And that's one of the big benefits of these lists is it helps you frame your experience. It's like when you're struggling with being asleep, it's helpful to know that's one of the hindrances, how that can be an expression of delusion. When you find yourself really caught in that identification that I am so right and the other person is so wrong, that you're caught in that process of selfing. And you can see how that's described in things like dependent origination for the five aggregates. So you can kind of take that whole thing apart and see it in a more clear way. But even that has a, it has a huge help to help us have confidence in the practice and the path, help us start to relax our minds. But ultimately there's a, a sense of, of surrender that has to come that we'll, we'll come back into later in this talk. Now, one thing about, you know, those of you who were around a while and know Rodney's teaching, I know he's, he taught last month. Um, I guess he was very well attended. But one of the central pieces of his teaching is he's always focused on liberation, on awakening. That's kind of to the forefront of what he teaches and how he teaches. Everything is in relationship to that. And so that's a helpful lens to come forth in our practice. So in my own practice, you know, studying with Rodney those, those early years for those many years, there's three aspects I found very helpful. So I want to offer those. And as a suggestion of how do we come into a, the study, the more detailed study of these Buddha, Buddhist concepts. So there's three of them, mindfulness, investigation, and surrender. Mindfulness, investigation, and surrender. So mindfulness and investigation, you can recognize those from the seven 
factors of awakening and from other lists. Surrender is a little different. It's more of this attitude of, of non-clinging, or perhaps you can use faith as an aspect of that. Now, these three aspects are very helpful to learn how to bring our daily life into our Dharma practice, because they, there's something we can actually have a footing. Like on this month-long retreat, you know, we had so much time to just be still, just to, to be present with our breath, with our body, without distractions, without responsibilities other than a, like one little job a day. And so there's, there's a way that you can really relax into that quality of mindfulness. In our daily life, we have all these distractions going on. I mean, I myself, I'm a, I have a, another job. I'm a Dharma teacher. I'm very involved in the Sims board. I have a daughter who's now in college. I have a wife. I have a household to take care of and dishes to do and things to fix. So there's all these things pulling me different directions. So on retreat, all that fell away. I could just practice. So the question is, can we have a deep practice in daily life? That's an important question. And I think yes. I think absolutely. But we have to change it how we practice a little bit. And these three aspects of mindfulness, investigation, and that quality of surrender can be very helpful. So mindfulness. So probably most of us know mindfulness and are aware of it. But just in case it's, it's, I'll define it anyway. There's kind of two main components to mindfulness. There's that steadying quality of attention. And there's also the way that attention has a non-judgmental quality. So that studying it part of it is learning how to place our attention on something and have it be sustained there. So like shining a flashlight, it sits on something, something we're observing, sensing, knowing, and it's, more or less stable with that. So this is why we practice so much coming back to something like the anchor to cultivate that, to develop that. Now, equally important, if not more important, is the way that attention is meeting. Because we can be very focused on something like a cat at a mouse hole, right? Where it's tense, but really undivided attention. But the quality of mindfulness that's essential is one of, of really non-judgmental, non-comparison, it's really a a quality of kindness. It's allowing the moment to be just how it is. It's not trying to change what's being seen, right? We may see something and need to make a change around it, but mindfulness itself has this capacity just to see what is here objectively with a quality of an, an openness of heart. Now, when we see that distortion, what really this starts to do is starts to to clear up the lens of our observation. Makes it clear of distortion. So usually we see things. I mean, even right now as we're sitting, you can look out and notice when you see something that you like, something you don't like, that's a quality of distorting the way that you see. Even when you see something and you know what it is. Okay, that's my friend Joe. That's my friend Sue, whatever it might be that has a quality of, of adding something to what's being seen. So when we judge something, when we have an opinion about it, we're really relating to that opinion instead of actually what's there. When we see something with an agenda, we try how to get rid of something, how to get more of it, 
of how to compare it. That's all creates this other, this kind of distortion of how we're observing. Mindfulness starts to clear all that away. So we can see things in a very clear, objective way, and yet very receptive. That receptivity is also an important element because anyone who's practiced for any length of time realizes that you start to be present with yourself. You start to have those tender areas start to arise. There's areas of of pain, of sorrow, of sadness, of anger. Things start to arise to be met by that that quality of, of kind attention. Things are too difficult, hidden, painful. So we start to learn to see without distortion and see with this quality of a sustained, sustained quality. Then we really start to perceive what's actually present, what's actually here in front of us. Now we train this on things like the breath because it's, for many people, it's kind of a neutral thing. It's pretty doable. For some people, we focus on the breath and it just, you know, for different reasons, it hits, it's like a, a trauma response or there's energy, you know, it just becomes too much. And that's important to custom make the object of attention. Forget the breath, focus on something like the body or sound. So you find a place that you can really rest. In. This is the training of mindfulness. But if we just stay on the breath is very limiting. We just stay anchored on the breath. Eventually, once our mindfulness is trained, once it has a stability to it, we learn a lot by turning towards something like emotions, thoughts, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about others, our opinions. Because we can turn that mindfulness to those qualities without becoming lost in those qualities. Without becoming lost in those qualities, we can actually observe that. By doing this, by turning toward these qualities, we're actually turning towards some of the deeper ways that we're entrenched in our suffering, that we stay in our suffering. We turn to these, these teachings, to these lists, and we start to understand, oh, this is what it means to have aggregate of clinging. This is what it means for that seventh factor of awakening, for, for joy to arise. This is what it means to see a hindrance arise. Becomes, it's like you can see it in the laboratory of your own body, your own mind, your own heart. And we turn to those parts in ourselves, which are, we feel, we believe are true, the sense of inadequacy, the lack, the, the shame, the guilt, those tender areas, those painful areas. And there's something amazing about seeing clearly without distorting, without trying to change it that actually has a transformational quality. This learning to be with your, your, your inner experience starts to change it in ways that you couldn't predict would happen. Things start to fall away in ways you do not expect. So mindfulness. And this is in now investigation. Once we have that quality of mindfulness, investigation kind of directs where that looks what that connects to, what it observes. So investigation is this, this quality of curiosity. I'm like, what's of interest? What's, what's here? And where's my heart close? Where's my mind contract? Where's my mind relax? Where's my heart open? That's kind of the basic theme for investigation. 
And that's why it's so helpful in daily life because, you know, we go through a day and we have lots of times that our, our hearts close or we get irritated, we get upset, we get disappointed. Those are all entries into practice. If you learn to work with them in the right way, they're actually gifts to say, oh, this is a chance for me to practice, to learn about how my heart contracts, how I can release that heart. Moments of kindness, of generosity, of connection, noticing those equally. It's like, wow, you know, I, I really connected with that person. I actually met their, their eyes. I actually asked them how they were and they actually told me how they were. That moment of connection is so precious. This is where daily life is, is very helpful because we're not so sheltered from all those interactions. So on the retreat, this month-long retreat, we all took noble silence. We turned in our cell phones. We didn't talk to anybody except the t- teacher maybe every other day or every third day for 15 minutes. And so you just, all those interactions, you're still kind of, you know, seeing people and navigating things like trying to get through the lunch line and whatnot, but it's much less than our normal way we bounce off each other. But in life we have, we're not sheltered by that. We get to actually experience all those roles we take on all those relationships, those responsibilities. Now this is a piece that I think Many of us struggle with when we go on a retreat, whether it's a weekend retreat or a seven-day retreat or a month-long or a three-month. We try to hold that quality of of sustained mindfulness into our daily lives. Okay, so I want to, if you go on retreat, you know, you can, you're encouraged just to notice each step. You notice each time you reach to, to touch something, when you pick up a cup, you're trying to be present for every single moment. I remember my wife and I were on a retreat and I was still in that mode. I was getting gas and I was walking across the, you know, the, the compound and someone hawked their horn at me because I was probably walking like super slow because I just, I was like, I want to be really present here. So we have to speed up. Another story is someone was after a retreat was um, going to drive their car and they got in their car very mindfully, you know, put on their safety belt, uh, put their car in neutral took off their brake, and the next thing you knew, they, their car rolled back and, and bumped into something because they, they didn't put their, their foot brake on or their hand, their, their brake on. So mindfulness, that kind of sustained moment by moment, we can't keep that up in our daily lives. There's too much stuff coming at us. What we can do is learn when to be mindful, when it really counts. Okay, that's where investigation is so helpful. And that's where the lists start to become helpful because we can see the terrain. So often when we have a choice point of action, okay, I, can, I can have an action that can, that can be kind or unkind, generous or more close-hearted. When I have those touch points, those choice points, I should say, that's a beautiful time to really show up, to really what's in this heart and mind. What's the body feeling like? What's the intentions behind this action? So, you, okay, you load it up. Other time is when you get a little hurt, when you feel that pain, when you feel that contraction. That's a beautiful time to bring forth that mindfulness and bring forth investigation and notice, okay, what exactly is going on here? 
you know, psychological work and Dharma work sometimes intertwine a lot. Psychological work, one way to think of it, has that sense of self is still really intact. We're trying to work with that sense of self to help you heal, to help become more comfortable within itself. Dharma work is noticing what's the release of that sense of self. What's the release of an identification? Right? So they're, they are intertwined, but they have a kind of a different ultimate purpose. In Dharma work, we're learning how to, to see through this illusion of self. Well, for psychological work, we're learning how to have a healthy, functional sense of self. We need to have, we definitely need to have both. You know, I need to have that healthy sense of self. And in Dharma work, then eventually we can release that self and see where is that freedom outside of conditions? So when those pain patterns show up, that's when investigation comes in. Now, what that looks like, you know, for, for myself, sometimes I get triggered by something or I get caught in some argument or some, you know, I, I just get irritated with some situation. The normal response is that we blame, push out, proliferate in our thinking, right? Justify ourselves. The Dharma way to practice, investigate a way, is to say, okay, what's here in this body? I mean, really, what's here right now? What's the sensations of contraction of heart? What's the sensations of that anger? And see it, again, with that mindfulness quality. I'm not trying to change, not trying to fix, but just to know. This is hard because we're so conditioned to do something with it. But you just be patient with that. As you do that, you start to also notice what's those deep beliefs that come up around that? What do I believe is true in this moment? And we can follow that through to different layers where you feel this really deep level of it. And an even deeper way to investigate is notice, okay, who is the person who is actually angry here? Where is that person? Can I locate them? And if we do that, we actually see that that sense of me who's so upset isn't actually so locatable as we thought it was. If we kind of participate in that anger or that pattern of fear or whatever it might anxiety, whatever it might be, it's kind of we know where we are. We actually start to see where that me is. It becomes much less clear, much less formed. Because it really depends our, on our engagement with it to activate it. So this comes to this next point of surrender, of how do we surrender? Because when we start to see that, that sense of, of investment in me and, and contraction of self, I can choose to continue from that, or I can choose to surrender to something outside of the self, something that's not formed by me, that's not contracted in me. You can think of this as also of letting go, of non-clinging. So part of this is the non-resistance to this moment's experience, this quality of surrender. It's like, okay, I'm going to allow this moment to be how it is. This is a quality of, we often hear the word equanimity, you know, especially in some, some, some uh, circles of Dharma practice. And equanimity is not something we kind of just force on ourselves. I'm going to just be okay with whatever it is. But it's actually when the heart really relaxes and is really okay with how things are. That's when true equanimity starts to arise. 
So not pushing away, not pulling toward the essential element of this non-clinging. So with painful things, things of emotionality, so how can I relax with how I allow that to be just how it is? See how this ties back into mindfulness. To really be have a non-distorted lens, we have to learn to relax our reactivity, to actually meet this moment, to allow this moment to be how it is. It doesn't mean we don't feel. We actually may feel more intensely. It's like, oh, I feel this that I haven't felt for a while. And even more important is that surrender of our opinions, our position of being right, of being wrong. Even the position of me as the meditator. So this is where investigation, it starts to lead. When I think we're doing investigation in a skillful way, each time we kind of go through this terrain, we become a little quieter inside. You become more still inside. You start. To, we're starting to let go as we're seeing. Now, if we start to do something that seems like investigation, but we're actually just kind of thinking about it, we become more and more kind of caught in our thoughts and our mind. Now, what's interesting, what happens with these three things, and this is where Rodney really directed much of practice, at least from my, my sense of it, is we start to move to what he called awareness. Okay, so sometimes awareness is used um, the same thing as as mindfulness. But he used awareness in a particular way, which I think is helpful. It's similar to how some Tibetan teachers use consciousness. So mindfulness we can think of as me paying attention to something, me focusing on something, me relaxing to something. Awareness is when we start to relax that locus, that center point of me, and awareness is just knowing. It's like awareness just, it's like the, we're relaxing into, we're surrendering into consciousness, which just is aware of what's in, is present in this moment. Usually what we do is we see something and it's kind of going through this, this loop of me seeing and me meditating, me having an experience. Awareness is, is simply the knowing, simply the very perception itself. One way to get a sense of this is, is you look around the room, you can see the chairs, you can see the other people. Those online, you can see your computer, you can see the, the details in your room. Right? So that's all kind of oriented. You see something and you kind of know you're seeing it, you're sensing it, you're hearing it, feeling it. Now imagine for a second that the thing that's sensing, this thing that's knowing is not you, but actually the air in the room. They've actually space in the room. And to do this, you have to kind of release that, that central point of view, which might be a little weird or a little disconcerting to do that. But yet this is where practice leads to, is releasing that central point of me. So you get that sense of the space holding everything in the room. And how much does that space in the room judge one chair from another? How much does it judge one person from another person? It doesn't judge at all. It simply meets everything. It completely holds, completely conforms. So this is the capacity of, of mindfulness, investigation, surrender, starts to lead 
more and more to this abiding in awareness itself that becomes more and more of our home base of how we practice, how we perceive the world. So these three elements of mindfulness, of investigation, and that quality of surrendering, of letting go into the moment, can be important guides for how we practice. Now, those might be helpful guides for you. You might have a different set of guides. You might lead more of maybe metta, might be what you really come into. Each moment I want to meet with a quality of loving kindness. Maybe there's a a quality of a balance of attention, of equanimity is what you lead into. The important thing is for you to find what what really resonates and what works for your own practice. And the way you tell it works is you try it out not only on the cushion or on the chair, but in your daily life. Can I bring that forth in the midst of my daily life? So back to this study, the study of all the lists. So they have a tremendous value in helping us kind of map out the train and seeing how this mechanism of of suffering works, how selfing works, how the release of that works. There's lists like the five hindrances that show us how we contract. There's lists like the seven factors of awakening that show how we we have this quality of balance of 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 our energy so we can actually start to see more and more deeply. This helps the mind relax. It helps our hearts start to open. But here's an important point I want to make is that we need to learn that our minds can only take us so far. Our thoughts can only take us so far on the way. This poem, I'll read another poem from the, it's called The First Free Women. Poems, original poems inspired by the early Buddhist nuns by Marty Weingast. So a friend in the dark, friend of the dark. So this is a nun when she, often these nuns and monks would write poems when they, they had a deep realization, deep awakening. I was always smart. If the path was good, I figured it would make me even smarter. One night while meditating, I watched my thoughts piling themselves up all around me. My mind built a house out of all those thoughts then filled that house. Soon it was a whole city, a whole world. Oh, my beautiful, beautiful thoughts. Who will look after you after I'm gone? I swear I could weep. I could weep for all of you, my sisters. Do you really want to be free? Are you ready to leave behind all your precious little houses and make your home elsewhere? Make your home everywhere. It's not as hard as you might think. First stand up, then walk out the door. So this points to how we can really be enamored by our thoughts. Even the thoughts of the Dharma can become so precious that we we kind of find that's where we feel the most comfortable. I think that's an important guideline, is that the Dharma ultimately is not about being more comfortable. It's about being free. Right, so to really be free, we have to go beyond what's comfortable, what's known, right? Known by we can have this whole framework of the Dharma, but that actually can limit us. 
It helps us learn to train, help us learn to understand the nature of our suffering, how to construct the self. But ultimately, the true knowing has to come from our heart, has to be from a different place. A book I was reading recently, a Tibetan teacher, talked about how we often approach, um, sometimes we approach from the mind trying to understand. It's like trying to squeeze butter from sand. Right, So that's like the mind trying to figure out what enlightenment is, what awakening is. And it can spend a lot of time doing that, right? You can really try to figure out what's this awakening? What's that like? You know, it's trying to understand it. But it's like trying to figure it out. It's like trying to squeeze sand, butter from sand. And we can squeeze for a long, long time and have no butter come out. Right, So that's this shift into the heart, into that quality of surrender. So as you, as you practice the Dharma, as you, as you learn to, to meet your moment's experience and as you, you study these, these Buddhist teachings and these lists, always keep that quality of that, that one taste of liberation. Keep that to the forefront that as you're practicing, where's that taste, that taste of liberation? Where's that quality of surrender of ultimately letting go of all concepts and really opening to that wonder? Of, of liberation, of awakening, of stillness. And teachings are about letting go, letting go in a very deep way. All right, let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle. All right, thank you for your kind attention. So I want to just talk a little bit about the homework and how to engage with it. And then we'll have a chance for some questions you might have and help me clarify what I might have said and help you uh, engage your own practice. So the homework. So if you uh, online, I think you got a copy of it on, in the chat. And in person, I know many of you didn't get that, but you can hopefully there's one there you can copy. But it's pretty simple. So reflecting, as I said at the beginning of the talk, you, you've been practicing for maybe, maybe you're just starting practice. Maybe you've been practicing for decades. What is your relationship between meditation practice and Dharma study, studying these lists? And what's, what's the role? What has been the role historically? Maybe you started off really engaged in, in learning about the Four Noble Truths. And it's like, I want to really understand that. Maybe that was what kind of hooked you into the Dharma. Maybe you start off meditation in an MBSR class or a, a mindfulness class. You know, who, any place you do it, it doesn't matter. Just to reflect on that. And what's the relationship between practice and study, both historically and also right now? To see that they both have their, their roles and their, their strengths and also their, their limitations. That practice helps us really see 
the train in a very personal, direct way, in a way that becomes unshakable because we see it for ourselves. We see, okay, I know this. I've seen this in my own life, in my own, my heart. You have confidence grows again and again as you, as you try things out in the world, as you find things start to fall away, that you have this, uh, this opening, this quality of accessibility to your heart. Now, the Dharma lists help you understand how the suffering shows up, helps you show that when you're struggling with the hindrances, that you're not alone, that people have been struggling with the hindrances for 2,600 years or more. I'm sure more than that. So you start to understand, how do I work with them? How do I frame them? How do I understand the nature of selfing? How do I understand the nature of suffering? There's all these different gateways that it starts to open up. So we need, some ways we need both. What ratio, I think, depends on each person. So that's the invitation as we explore the Dharma in this month, is to see what's, what's the right ratio for you. To realize that that may change over time. That sometimes you might want to lead into the practice, sometimes lead more into the study. All right, so let's give you a little time for any questions you might have. So online, if you could just raise your virtual hand or down by in either participants or comments. And here in, per, in person, you can raise your physical hand. And if you don't mind, there's a little mic just for the online people that they can hear you better. Yes, do you mind coming up here so I can hear you? I'm going to change the camera angle so you can see you. Does this work? You guys can hear him? Can you hear me? Yes. Cool. Uh, my question was just about investigation. Yes. Um, I was curious if you could go into more detail about what the difference between investigation and analysis. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So analysis is, you know, and they each have their place, right? And it's like sometimes analysis, maybe that's how we do our job. That's how we make our way in the world can be very helpful. So analysis tends to have more of a quality of you're trying to create a, maybe there's a, a, you kind of, in some ways, um, I was going to say you make a conclusion. It's something that you can kind of rest on. Like, okay, I'm clarifying the situation. Investigation has that same quality, but it's a simplification of things. It's like you're seeing more that direct line of, Let's say I'm trying to investigate what, how impermanent shows up in my life. So I'm investigating what I take as being permanent. And so as I see that more and more deeply, there's a, a very uh, embodied quality of investigation. You're feeling it. Okay, I'm feeling the sensations in my body. I'm feeling maybe that stillness. I'm feeling that quiet. Maybe I'm feeling the little bit of fear as I realize, or I really look at impermanence, I see that everything is impermanent. Right? So sometimes that happens too. Well, analysis is much more of a function of the mind, of thoughts, of ideas. And so sometimes it, it has effect of getting more and more, more thoughts, more elaboration around it. Maybe very helpful elaboration. But from a Dharma standpoint, it's much more of that simplification process than coming back into to what's present. Sorry, I should have changed the angle back for the online people. Does that help? All right, any other follow-up on that? 
Okay, thank you. All right, how about back online? Anyone have anything they'd like to ask? All right, Iris, go ahead. Um, hi there, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I, you know, I have, a, I have um, combined both practicing and reading since I started my practice many years ago and found that extremely helpful. But I wonder, um, especially for people who are new to, to the teachings of the Buddha, if you might suggest some resources and maybe even some books or magazines or, or maybe make a list for those who want to start reading about the Buddhist teachings. Um, just, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I wonder if some of the newer folks are wondering now, where am I supposed to start finding out about this? Um, so just, just throwing that out there. Thank you, Iris. Yeah, I think our, our website has some, some resources of some links of some, some different, you know, places to study. You know, I think it's, you know, I tend to, um, hesitate about giving a broad kind of blanket. This is what you should read or should study because each person, it may not be the right fit for them. You know, one person, the fit might be more Brahma Viharas or someone might be more interested in, in mindfulness or in, in investigation or things like that. Or sometimes it's better to say, maybe you should not read for a while. Maybe you should just practice for a while. Really use your own experience. So it's kind of a, I tend to hesitate about, you know, this is what every, this is the, the model for everyone and how they should all practice. But in terms of resources, don't we sure we have a suggested reading list on the website? I don't know that we have a suggested reading list, but we have his resources. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's resources. There's many, it's hard to, there's so many things you can read. So if you have a particular question, I can, I can direct you. One of the, there's a book called The Experience of Insight by Joseph Goldstein, which goes through a lot of the kind of classic teachings uh, in, a, in a pretty nice way. And then also a book I've used quite a bit is what the Buddha taught by Rahula. And that has a, a way like, okay, what's the Four Noble Truths? You know, here's kind of the core suttas of the Buddha. We also have classes like we had a Buddhist essential class that we'll be kind of re reinventing here in the next little bit of time and they do some other classes like some sutta studies and some different ways of, of engaging around the list. All right. Anyone back here in person have any? Yes. Do you mind coming up here? Hello. Um, so you mentioned that the Buddha said that he teaches two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Yes. Something I've been wondering about. So I've always approached meditation as a way to be happier, to mm-hmm. experience more peace, happiness, yeah. love, like more positive emotions, yes. essentially. Um, but with that quote you said, and also there's a podcast I listen to, um, Deconstructing the Mind. In one of the episodes, they say that one of the main goals of Meditation is to get to a point where you can have cessation and sort of cease experiencing. And they were sort of suggesting that 
that's the goal is to stop experiencing things. Mm. And that really shook my uh, perspective around uh, Buddhism and, and meditation. And is that, is that really the goal? Is, is it really just to be more at peace and more like sleep, like, and more closer to an unconscious almost state, or is it to find a more positive relationship with the activity of life? All right. Great question. Let me go back here. So it's Kyle, right? So what's your sense of that? How would you answer that based on your experience? Um, I know that there are definite ways that I can relate to going through the day. That's a lot more positive and, and joyful. And yeah. Um, I also know that that piece they're talking about that, like deep sleep, that unconscious, like cessation is also very pleasant. Yes. Yeah, so you can see both sides of it. So the the podcast, you know, I'd have to listen to it myself it was particularly about Buddhism, Buddhist practice. So the way you're describing it is not necessarily how I would, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. That's not about being more asleep or unconscious and that kind of piece. My guess is that it's the way I would say that it's, it's two things. One is that it's possible that they're talking about concentration states. So there's a states of, of really deep absorption or, trance that basically your mind kind of just focuses so much on something that everything else falls away. So all the hindrances stop for that time while you're in that state and that can be very peaceful, right? So the Buddhists, you know, found that was a helpful part of his practice. It's not a big part of what I've, I've practiced myself, but the Buddha was very clear that that wasn't liberation. He was very clear about that. The other part of cessation is a big part of the teachings, but it's not cessation of experience. It's cessation of that clinging around it. It's really that selfing around it, that creating a sense of self. So there's still experience that's, that's known. It just not, we're not, you know, we're not being, we're not creating that sense of me around it. Doesn't mean we don't still have emotions. Doesn't mean we don't still have pleasures and unpleasant things. It just not going that sense of, of meanness. It's of clinging around it. So that sensation, you know, the, at least the way you're describing it, I would say that's a misinterpretation of, of the teachings. So not to go against the unknown podcaster, but that's that's the way I would I would say that's yeah, it's not about being more asleep. The Buddha Buddha means the awakened one. Okay, so it's about waking up, being really much more alive in the moment, much more present. Because usually we do walk around more in a dream state. Like we're talking to someone, we're you know, going through our lives, we're lost in our thoughts. You know, like uh, James Joyce, William Duffy, one of his characters, he lived a short distance from his body. You know, he kind of go through life kind of, you know, not really connected. It's like it's about really waking up, being fully present. And that's the cessation is really that cessation of that, that clinging, that, that fire of creating that sense of self. Once that self burns away and falls away, then there's simply, there is a deep peace and there's a deep joy that's not based on conditions. So in terms of your practice, your first part of your question around understanding suffering and the end of suffering, and it sounds like you've kind of more focused on the 
the joy and the, the ease of life. There's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. Just notice that when suffering arises in your life, what's your relationship to it? If there's a sense, oh, I want to get escape that, move away from that to get to that peaceful place, then that's something to look at. But if you're just naturally opening to the joy, you know, the Buddha was also called the happy one. You know, people described his, his followers as being happy and content. You know, so that's that's important too. Thank you. I guess, yeah, I was, I was also wondering why he chooses to focus on the end of suffering rather than focusing on the positive feelings you want in lieu of the suffering. All right. So follow-up questions. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, in that book that I mentioned, uh, What the Buddha Taught by Ruhula, he made this important point that, you know, often... Things like awakening, enlightenment are defined on what they're not by what they're not. Like cessation itself is your something's letting go up. And Rahula was saying that this was intentional because if we say something like, you know, bliss or something like peace, the mind can kind of form an idea around that. Oh, I know what that is, or I want that. Right. So it's in some ways it's it's an, it's much more helpful for our practice to look that sense of letting go of that releasing from. So basically defining things by what they're not gives us less to grasp onto. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Back online. Anyone have anything to ask or share? All right. What about back here in person? Yes, come on up, Dave. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, My question is about moving beyond the anchor in meditation, Mm -hmm. go beyond just focusing on the breath. Hopefully other people are in this situation. Um, I find that I, I have important insights into my selfing and my relationships and my, my mental life. But I also find that my mindfulness drifts. Like I'll realize, oh, I have had an important realization. And should I be, well, maybe should is the wrong word, but would it be good to have more continuous mindfulness or is this what it looks like? Just like the flickering flashlight of like occasionally, Oh, that was an important idea. So let me help me define your question a little bit more. Cause you talked about um, one point, kind of a one pointed versus letting go of that one point. And you talked about insights arising and how you should work with those and continuous mindfulness. Is that, how does that all circle together? Yeah. I'm trying to move away from the one point mindfulness into a, what you've called the choiceless awareness mm-hmm. and yeah the choiceless awareness is what i'm describing is not sure i'm doing it right with this kind of intermittent mindfulness while still having what seem like important realizations mm. okay thank you so question around um kind of that one-pointed focus like i'm focusing exclusively on this releasing everything else 
versus a more open awareness, sometimes called choiceless awareness, when we're just letting whatever arises being known in this moment. And how does that relate to, you know, how do you do that well, especially when, you know, realizations or insights arise and whether there's kind of gaps around it. Yeah. So this is an important question. I think it's, it's also, this is part of the discernment we or maturity that we start to have as meditators is that you sit down and if you have this agenda that I'm going to meditate in this particular way, sometimes that doesn't match with how the state of your mind and body is. Okay. So like, let's say I've, I'm really tired. I'm really distracted. If I try to go into choiceless awareness, I'm going to go into like, you know, being lost in thought and being just drifting all over the place. So that's not so helpful. You know, I want to have that. Okay. I'm going to switch to more of that choice, that choice awareness to steady the attention. You know, look, just, okay. I definitely have feedback. I felt that breath. Okay. I got lost in thought, but now I feel this next breath. You know, so I have that feedback. Now, when you find other times that there's a natural kind of stability of that attention, it's like, okay, I'm present. I'm awake. You know, I'm not, my mind's not drifting into thoughts so much. That's a nice time to open to choiceless awareness. So you can think of it, I'm just being aware of whatever arises. Okay, so that's, there's kind of two different flavors of choiceless awareness. One is more of that, um, I'm switching the locus of my attention. Okay, so let's say the people in this room represent different things in my experience that Okay, now Adam is my focus. He's my breath or something. And then there's a sound and I'm focusing on Dave. And then, oh, there's Cheryl. There's, you know, then, but I'm like each time I focus and then once that kind of fades, okay, then this next, some kind of intentionally choice, choosing which one I'm going. So it's, there's a little bit of choice in it. I'm not focusing exclusively, but I'm more open to what's arising. Like staying on the edge, you know, of of a intersection, I see a car go by. Okay, there's a red car, there's a blue car. I'm choosing to focus on each of those. Now, once things are more stable or wherever conditions are there, that you're, you can actually be more of that space in the room that just holding whatever is going through. Okay, so it's a little bit more of a blending into what's called big sky meditation. You're just that, that space that's holding everything. But the clear, the important thing is how clear is your attention? So when you when I'm in a, a quality of, of of choiceless awareness, there's a there's a deep steady sense of being steady, being present, and knowing what's arising. You know, I'm, I'm not becoming lost in thought. If I get lost in thought, I come back. Right. So it sounds like you probably might be trying to go into choiceless awareness when it might be better to have that stability. And then maybe in the halfway through the meditation, you start to feel that stability. And you can open to that choiceless awareness. Other times you might just, you know, wow, you know, I just, you know, sometimes life kind of induces it. You know, you have a loss. You see, you hear something that really touches you either on the joyous way or the, the, the painful way. And you just, it's like something just lets go in you and you're just naturally present. You're just naturally open to what's here. Right. So yeah, just kind of have that, that discernment around that. And eventually it starts to shift that there's more of that. You don't have to do the meditation so much. It just, you're simply present. So it's a, a more of a, a gentle quality of, of choices awareness. Thank you. Thank you, Dave.
All right, back online. Oh yes, Matt, go ahead. Hey Tim, um, I have a question about approaching like the original Buddhist texts. Um, so I'm mostly um, in like my study side of of this homework. You know, I've read books by like Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and I've gone a lot from those. So you know, books like about the original text. But last year, I tried it for the first time reading some of them directly. I can't remember what the book was called. It's called like Life of the Blue or something, but it's kind of like a um, compilation of a bunch of the original stuff, kind of with some of like the, like the list, but also like other of the stories from the text. And like, I think sometimes I found the list helpful, but some of the stories quite distracting in that I feel like there's probably like historical context I'm missing, you know, like would be a story about like the Buddha, like shooting fire out of his hands or something. And like, this isn't, I don't quite see, you know, how to connect this to my practice. And there's probably, you know, like, I don't, you know, don't know quite what it means for me. And, but I've wondered, like, I think this is probably from growing up in like, you know, different religious traditions where like the written word is very important. Like, it feels like kind of wrong to me. Like, can I like disregard parts of it? And like, I, was, I don't know, this doesn't matter. I'm not going to like, you know, um, care too much about that. And then certain parts resonate more. Um, but yeah, I was wondering how you approach like, you know, because there's, there's a lot of material there, right. And some of it, I can easily see how it connects to my practice and some of it like doesn't seem like it connects very well. Um, wondering how you approach that. Sure. Yeah. Great question. I'm thinking about doing a, a Sutta study class this year. So that's, you know, we, that's one thing we can explore is take a Sutta and how do we kind of unpack it? How do we look at it? I think part the heart of your question is that some of the suttas you can see, okay, this is definitely fits into my practice. It's like, okay, that's, that's a real, you know, helpful sutta. But other ones are like, okay, what is that? It's coming out of left field. And so I think it's important. It's helpful to, to reflect that the, the suttas, it's not like we have like, like a recording like this, that we actually have, this is what the Buddha actually said. We actually, you know, this is an exact transcript of it that for 300 years, People just recited what they decided what the Buddha said. You know, they said, okay, let's, let's take these kind of set points or phrases. We'll plug those in here. And, oh yeah, I remember he was talking to that, that guy in Vulture's Peak. Let's get that one. That's a good point. So they, they kind of figured out how to say it. They agreed upon that and they just recited it. You know, groups of, of monks would just recite the same thing and then teach someone else. And for 300 years, that's how it sustained until finally it was written down. And so when we look at something of a modern translation, we don't know like how much has been changed, how much has been altered, how much has been, you know, so because there's different, you know, throughout the, the Buddhist histories, there'd be these big gatherings that would come together and say, what's the, what's the Buddhist teachings? And, you know, they would add things and subtract things. And I mean, same thing with Christianity, you know, any religion, they, they're always, you know, it's not, I don't know whole like that's really the word of, of the Buddha all the time. Sometimes it just resonates so deeply. It's like, well, that's, that's, that seems like that's what the Buddhists are taught. So basically in some of the supernatural stuff, I think that can be a little off-putting or how do I deal with that? You're talking about the life of the Buddha. Is that the book you read? I think that's what it was called. Um, yeah, I think it was like a bunch of suttas, yeah, but kind of in like chronological, roughly order, the big section in the middle of just like the the Dharma. 
Yeah, that's a nice, it's a nice book because it basically teaches the life of the Buddha through these suttas. It's all there. So it, so, but it kind of pieced together these different pieces. But there's this one section that he's doing all these supernatural things. And I think it's helpful to look at it more from a kind of a, kind of a mythology kind of standpoint or metaphor standpoint. And that particular sutta, I remember reading that and, and kind of scratching my head about it. That if I recall it right, he was basically trying to impress this other teacher. This other teacher kept saying, well, yeah, that's good, but I'm more enlightened than you are. You know, it's kind of, I'm better. So the Buddha kept kind of upping the ante. Well, okay, I'm going to do this supernatural power. And I'm going to do this one. I'm going to do this one. And no matter what he did, the guy just said, no, you know, I'm still better than you. And what I took from that is that was kind of the Buddha figuring out, you know, not to do that stuff. Because <laughs> it doesn't really impress people if they don't want to be impressed. It doesn't really lead to benefit. So he kind of let that let that go. It's kind of exhausting that. So he's kind of working through that. What, how much are those powers he actually had? Who knows? I mean, I remember this other commentary talking about the Buddha would, you know, bathe, but he just did that so he would fit in because he was so pure that dirt literally couldn't stick to his skin. I'm like, mm, what about when he had dysentery? What about when he had a hurt toe and back pain? You know, that's, you know, part of it is just the the devotion to the Buddha and, and you know, just if that doesn't resonate, just let that go. Some of the suttas around how nuns, you know, the beliefs around nuns, I mean, that, um, you know, it just doesn't resonate. It doesn't seem like it's actually what the Buddha talked, taught. So it's, it's like you, you, you have to hold the suttas with, with some discernment around it and they can be very helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Small follow-up question. Um, I think I've heard before that there's some sutta or something somewhere in the text where the Buddha says like some line about like if a if a teaching like doesn't feel true, you can like let it go. Is that something that's actually in there somewhere? Um, I don't know the origin, but I've I've heard that a couple times. Yeah, there's a, a famous sutta called the uh, Kamala. Uh, I'm saying it wrong, but it's a sutta where. Basically, he was talking to a group of people who had lots of teachers coming through and they would say one thing and the next teacher would disagree and they're like, okay, what do we believe? And the Buddha said, basically, you know, see for yourself, see what's true for yourself. And if you see it's true for yourself, then that's follow that. If it's not true, you know, see in your own experience and let it go. Yeah, the Kamana, Kamala Sutta, something like that. Yeah, come see for yourself. Thank you. All right, back in person. Anyone have? We have a time for maybe one or two more questions. If there's anything. All right, let's let's go with our UW student. Do you mind coming up for a second? Just they can hear you online better. And they might need a little closer. Just yeah, just that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, I, I've read that you should avoid a thriveling conversation because yeah. it's not good for mindfulness. But I've also read that you also need to practice loving kindness and that can help your concentration. Um, but sometimes with my family, um, 
they I get into thriving conversation um, and I want to disengage mm -hmm. but then I feel like I'm not practicing loving kindness doing mm -hmm. that so I don't know how to handle that yeah it's a great practical question around you know the teachings of you know, wise speech, one of them is to avoid idle or frivolous conversation. Just talk just about the Dharma. <laughs> I don't know how many teachers actually do that. I think, you know, there's there's a way that we can also just appreciate interconnection. And sometimes we talk about things like, well, how, how are the Seahawks doing? How are the Kraken doing? You know, it's not, you know, it's it's like you just relating to the other person. It's when we get really caught caught in that, I think we only do that. So what I often do is, when I'm engaging in that kind of idle chatter is I, I might be doing that, but I'm connecting with other person. That's where the metta comes in because metta has that quality of a well-wishing to the other person. So when you're talking to your family, you don't want the Dharma to become something that gets in the way of that relationship. It becomes like, but you can also notice if you, if it turns to gossip or undercutting someone, you can feel how that doesn't maybe feel right either. It doesn't feel good. So maybe you can redirect that or say that, oh, I don't want to talk about someone who they're not present. So you can kind of, you know, kind of add that into that so that maybe your family can start to, to grow in the conversations of how they, how they care for each other. Cause the metta, you know, has that, that as you look at another person, just like that, that well wishing, that connection, that being next to the other person. And if that relationship is calls for some, some idle, frivolous chatter, that's okay. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, thank you for the question. All right, Adam, do you still have yours? Hey, everyone. Um, so in, in my practice recently, I've been thrilled to have a little bit more uh, awareness or mindfulness arising in my you know, daily life. And I was listening to a podcast and the podcaster said something about um, the hindrances being graces that they point directly sometimes to where there's work to be done. Mm. And in, in my, my daily life, I've been picking up on that a little bit and trying to work with that. And um, I wonder if you can kind of like it, like, for example, if I'm feeling a lot of anxiety or something, maybe I go, oh, wow, there's actually a lot of sloth and torpor here. Mm -hmm. I'm you know, almost like pulled into daydream away from these things that are, that are, you know, giving rise to a feeling of anxiety. So what, what, what's the good way to follow up with that then? It's so like, okay, I'm present. I see the sloth and torpor. It's pointing to something. And then I, I feel like it's the, that quality of investigation maybe that, that can follow up on that. But then it's also like, again, in daily practice, in my daily life with all of the bells and whistles that are pulling my attention in multiple different directions. Yeah. So any thoughts on that would be appreciated. All right. That's the big question. <laughs> in the last zero minutes. So yeah, I would, I would, I would agree that the, Hindrances can be a, a great value for us to to learn about, you know, places where we're contracting, you know, and seeing that, you know, so 
the, the basic thing is, is always, it's always good to know what's present. Actually step back. When you find yourself in some kind of struggle, step back and just notice, okay, what's, what's here? Is, what is a hindrance here? Does it fit into one of those, those five categories or some of its, its variations or its extended family of, you know, aversion and hatred and fear? You know, there's all those different qualities that show up. And then see, what I like to do is just notice, okay, what's my, my basic relationship to that? You know, am I going toward it? Am I going away from it? And can I try to relax that movement so I can actually have a relationship with it? In some ways, it's like metta, your willingness to be next to this experience. Let me experience what's, what's actually here. So in daily life, sometimes things are going so quickly, you can just kind of notice that. And sometimes the best you can do is when you feel that clutching of the heart to try to really slow down your <laughs> the output you're doing. You know, so to not okay, be careful that you're, you know, when you're triggered, you're going to likely to say something that's going to be harmful or unskillful to see if you can pay a little bit more attention in that moment. Then when you have more space, like maybe you go for a walk or you're meditating, then you can start to unpack that, you know, go through that deeper layer of, of really noticing, feeling, opening, surrendering to. So it's kind of that, you know, daily life, you don't have a whole lot of time sometimes but you can again notice, be mindful in the right times. Okay, say so I'm about to, I'm really pissed. I'm going to say something. Okay, you know, take two breaths and then, you know, my favorite technique is I write an email. I take the the you know I, I unload it so I take away the who it's actually being sent to. So in case I accidentally get sent, it doesn't actually go someplace. <laughs> and I write it and I you know ask my wife to look at it. <laughs> or to where you look at it, or I just sit with it. And I, okay, that's too charged. And I kind of, you know, work with it that way. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. All right. We've come to our time end of time. So I want to thank all the new people who arrived. Welcome. And both online and in person, you're welcome to come up and say hi, if you like. And even if you're not new, you're welcome to come up. And next week we'll be doing a discussion over this, this topic. So we'll take that homework and you have a chance to, I'll do a short recap or maybe a little small variation on this talk for about 20 minutes. Then we'll have some small groups. So you have a chance to kind of talk with each other. Say, you know, how are you, how are you working with this? How are you exploring this and sharing your own experience? All right. Thank you so much and have a wonderful evening.